This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi everyone, I hope your summer has been going well. In this latest episode, I talked with Sam Weatherspoon, the founder and CEO of Mirror Law. Mirror Law is a company based in Ottawa that is focused on using technology to improve access to justice. Compass and Fistu are two of their products. In our very conversation, Sam talks about his journey from graduating law school to starting his own legal tech company. We also talk about what Fistu and Compass do, the future role of technology in the practice of law, and the challenges of starting a legal tech startup. Lastly, just a quick technical note. Some of the interviews, there was some drilling that was being conducted nearby, and so you might hear some muffling sounds throughout the episode. Just keep in mind that those sounds are just from the drilling themselves, and they're not because of any technical issues you might be having with your earbuds. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed the episode. So, uh, tell us about yourself without talking about law or engineering. Uh, so, I am a massive outdoor enthusiast. Uh, I... Um, I've uh, skied at a very high level for a long time, uh, competed uh, in freestyle skiing in nationals at one point, um, and I really dedicated a large part of my life to skiing. Then I got into mountaineering, uh, and then I had a daughter about nine months ago now. Congrats. And thank you. And, and most of those priorities changed pretty quickly. Um, so... Uh, not in a bad way. I'm absolutely thrilled to, to have a daughter. Um, I actually have another one on the way. Oh, wow. That's how thrilled I am. So, uh, no, it's, it's amazing, but it, it really did change my priorities. So now I'm a dad, uh, first and foremost, and uh, second, I'm an entrepreneur. So a lot less skiing, I assume. A lot less skiing. I haven't actually skied at all this year. I see. You know, but peak like, law school, I was skiing 80 days a season. Really, eh? So... Yes. I'm just curious, because I'm from BC, so I'm curious. What do you think about the skiing here? Uh, So I grew up skiing at Camp Fortune. um, Oh, okay. And uh, that's actually where I learned, uh, not how to ski, but where my skiing went from sort of being a a mediocre gaper to um, being able to ski basically anything. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean... I went out west for law school so that I could ski. Um, So I skied at uh, Lake Louise and Revelstoke for my law school career. Um, Legitimately skiing like 80, 90 days a year. Uh, And um, I miss that for sure. It it doesn't really exist here, but um, I've gone down to the Adirondacks. I've I've done some touring in the Adirondacks. Uh, I'm hoping to, I mean, generally I, I try to do one big trip a year, so I'm going out to interior BC at the end of March oh, to, uh, <laughs> to cat ski actually. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my dogs are named after mountains. That, that's sort of like, that, that's sort of my, my shtick is I, I love skiing. I love being in the mountains. Yeah. My honeymoon was a month skiing in Chile. So that, right. that, that, that's like, it's my wife and I's priority besides uh, our child now. Soon to be yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they'll also be. Uh, yes, they have no choice. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have an engineering degree. 
then why did you decide to go to law school? Um, so it's a, it's a sort of a, a weird path, but basically I was working in consulting engineering <clears throat> and I was interacting with a whole bunch of environmental regulations that uh, made almost no sense um, in the context of scientific understanding. So uh, I, I, I mean, I can even still tell you the Ontario regulation number. It's OREG 27805. You can look it up. It's the asbestos regulation. And what we did was we'd go into buildings and we'd basically look for asbestos. And we set this threshold for what asbestos-containing material was and was not. Uh, and, and basically, the details are, are sort of irrelevant. But we picked a threshold. And we said, even if it contains asbestos, provided it's below this level, um, we will classify it as not asbestos-containing material. Uh, in reality, asbestos is bad. And uh, what we were doing is basically and what we continue to do, in my personal opinion, is expose uh, tradespeople especially to asbestos-containing material, but we represent it as not containing asbestos. Mm -hmm. So I was really frustrated by that. I thought it was um, dangerous. It made me very uncomfortable as, as a person. You know, one asbestos fiber is enough to cause um, cancer. They get stuck in your lungs and they're there for the rest of your life. You don't clear them. Um, it, it, it's, it's a very dangerous hazardous substance. And so I went back naively thinking that I could become a lawyer and then I could change that law. Um, within about a week and a half of law school, I realized how naive that, that uh, belief was. Um, but that, that's what originally drove me there. <clears throat> there were other regulations like uh, federal versus provincial drinking water standards are wildly different. Um, there, there's lots of examples that I encountered that were really, really frustrating. When you graduated from law school, you did uh, do what many people who graduate from law school with engineering degrees do, and that's working uh, an IP firm. Yep. And so... I actually uh, clerked before that. Oh, oh right. Yeah. And you also clerked. Yeah. That's right. So, like, and I don't have a science or engineering background, but my colleagues who work in IP, most of them do like it. It's, it pays pretty well. It's a pretty good work-life balance. So... I'm just curious, like, why didn't you stay? Um, so I think there are there are a variety of reasons with any decision. Um, one decision or one one reason was my wife got a job um, north of Toronto, and so uh, <clears throat> we were really either going to have to um, live in separate apartments during the week and sort of see each other on the weekends, uh, or um, she was going to have to commute like an hour and a half each way, or I was going to have to commute an hour and a half each way. So that, that was one of the major factors for sure was um, I didn't want to do that. You know, we were, we'd been married at that point for three months. So that, that, that didn't really seem like a sensible decision for me. Um, but also I wasn't, even though it pays well, the work-life balance is, is awesome, um, I found the work particularly dull. Uh, I was much happier trying to be an inventor, even if I failed miserably as an inventor, uh, than um, protecting intellectual property, specifically patents, for companies where you know there's really no reason to be protecting it. There's one patent that I worked on in particular, uh, and it was uh, for noise cancellation in a landline telephone handset. 
And so the gist was the noise, the sound waves can take a bunch of different paths from the earpiece making the noise to the receiver in the, the mouthpiece. Um, it can travel through the air, it can travel through the plastic, and it can travel through the wires inside that connect uh, down. Basically, the sound can move you know, three or four different ways, and it arrives at different times because sound travels differently at different speeds and different dens density of materials. Um, and they were patenting like an improvement on this, uh, and it just seemed like one of the most pointless patents um, I had ever ever seen and they were spending a lot of money doing it like it, it, enough money that uh, you know they probably could have hired a junior researcher and actually come up with something interesting <laughs> um, and so that that was one reason was the the material and the, the subject matter was dull for me it's not dull for a lot of people I, it just wasn't what I wanted to do and then the other piece was um, I wanted to take an active role in, in building things again and being a patent agent, you, you're not prohibited from doing that, but it's a really bad trade in a patent agent to be trying to improve the invention that someone's bringing to you. And so once I realized that, it, it really wasn't a good fit for me, so I moved on. And when you moved on, you um, decided to start your own company. Yeah. So why did you decide to start Marilon? Um, I mean, <coughs> where we started and where we've ended up were, two different places. I, I originally wanted to um, solve a problem that I saw in a lot of my experience at the federal court when I clerked. Um, they have no digital records management to speak of. Uh, there is some e-filing now, but it's really not super useful. Um, and so we were working with, you know, large paper volumes, uh, which is sort of ludicrous in the 21st century. Uh, but but that's what we were working with. Um, and so uh, I wanted to originally go in and fix that, and, and part of the motivation for wanting to go in and fix it is that information should be more accessible to the public, should be more visible. You shouldn't have to walk down to a courthouse and request a document and pay you know, 15 cents a page to make a copy. Um, you should be able to download those things. Maybe, maybe pay to download them, but you should be able to download them. Um, so. Some people will be familiar with PACER. It's the federal courts or the federal circuits in the U.S. They put all of their like pleadings, everything into the system, and you pay somewhere between one and ten cents a page uh, to download anything. Uh, it makes the government a huge amount of money each year, um, like three hundred million dollars. It's it's meaningless in the U.S. budget terms, but it's a huge amount of money to me, um, and so. It's not a perfect system, it's not polished, but what it's done is it's put that information out there. And I think the other piece is that information is high value information for law firms, for insurance companies, for credit bureaus. Like there, there's so many different applications for that information that are just completely squandered because we don't have it right now. So that's where we started and that's why I started it. Um, where we've ended up is, uh, somewhere completely different, but still basically focusing on um, the public's access to the just, justice system in, in some way. So then what does Mirror Law do? I know you guys have two products. You guys have this two and you guys have Compass. Um, what are those two products and are they both um, K 
catered towards your focus of increasing access to legal information. Yep. So, I, I mean, both are definitely focused on increasing access to legal information. Uh, what this too is, is it's a family law tool, um, basically provides uh, access to information for self-represented litigants. Uh, it gives them access to tools that have traditionally only been available to lawyers, and it automates a lot of the process that, that frankly, should have been automated 10, 15 years ago, uh, and, and gives them sort of a step-by-step -step guide so that they can manage their own proceeding on their own time using their own uh, resources at a significantly lower cost. Um, <clears throat> the end result of the, the family law uh, piece is they end up with their court forms ready to go. They can look up where to go for their court here, or where to drop things off at the court courthouse. Uh, they get a custom drafted separation agreement that uh, we've we've written some an, an algorithm that basically writes a separation agreement for people based on their profile that they provide, based on the requirements they they put in, um, and so. They, they basically go with a complete uncontested divorce package um, ready to go to drop off at the courthouse. Um, at the end of that, uh, we do try to steer them towards uh, lawyers, and we have a couple lawyers now that um, are, are giving our customers a, a discount and a flat quote up front for independent legal advice on their agreement um, because it is important they get independent legal advice on the agreement. Uh, you know, we, we can't evaluate whether there's a power imbalance, whether there's, you know, emotional or physical abuse, whether there's duress when they try to sign the agreement. And so the role of the lawyer there is to go in and make sure that, you know, they understand what's going on in the agreement, but also to make sure that those sort of situations aren't impacting their willingness to sign something. Um, <clears throat> so basically, we give them a low-cost way to move their way through the family law system. Right now, about 60% of people are, are stuck representing themselves because they can't afford a lawyer. And so that's really who we're trying to help, the, the market opportunity we're trying to address. On Compass, um, it's a legal research platform. Um, we, we purchased uh, the assets of Maritime Law Book uh, in about November. Um, and we basically launched a platform using a lot of the, the underlying technology that we built um, in support of our family law piece. So, you know, going through classifying documents, that type of thing. Um, natural language processing is one of our areas of expertise. Uh, and so that, that really means just teaching a computer to, to read a document. Um, we took all of that, put it into a package, and have, have given uh, basically a, our sort of minimum viable product, put that into the market as, as quick as we could. Um, and, and we're delivering that at a, a much more competitive price point than LexisNexis or Thomson Reuters, um, you know, order, orders of magnitude uh, yeah. better. And the, the long-term objective with that is to improve the content, to enrich the content, and to start to look at opportunities to integrate it with um, different pieces of our product. Uh, so giving self-represented litigants uh, a better natural language search tool so they can come in and ask questions and a model makes a recommendation of what is most relevant to them, as opposed to, um, you know, right now having to go to Canly and, you know, ha having to have a, a bit of an understanding about what you're looking for, um, you know, what, what the right keywords to search are, that type of thing. Um, yeah. 
Great, I think that was a great introduction of both of your products. So I, I, I'm just really curious about this too because I, I personally have some family law experience. Um, <clears throat> you said that the main goal for your products is legal education. Now, if I was a um, person who was seeking a divorce, you can go to Google, you can type in a lot of stuff out, uh, how do I get divorced, and you get a whole slew of different family law blogs. Yeah. So I'm just curious, um, what does this do differently than, say, if somebody just Googles? Right. So, uh, number one, we aggregate the content. So, you don't need to look anywhere else. I mean, we'd love our users to become more educated. The, the better educated one of our users is, the, the more likely they are to have less problems in the process in general. Um, the better their understanding the, the less friction there really is. Uh, but what we do differently than, say, a family law block is we don't just aggregate content. We've built tools that proactively help our users manage the process on their own. And I think that's the major differentiator is right now, you can go to Ontario Court Forms, you can find all the family law forms, but there's very little guidance, there's very little information, even from the Ministry of the Attorney General, on which form to fill in, which form goes when, how to do it, what what best practice looks like versus what the minimum you can do. Uh, and so moving people and automating all of that stuff, um, you know, my, my personal view is it's a tool that governments probably should have put in place given the, the crisis that we have, especially in the family courts. Um, but it's a tool that isn't currently available anywhere else. And so we've given people the ability to come in and manage their own proceedings start to finish, find all of the information they need in one place start to finish, and really deliver them um, out the other end in a way that they can then go to a lawyer, get independent legal advice, and do that in a much more cost-effective manner than uh, you know they could have two or three years ago. And now, from a lawyer's perspective, you, you did say that this to automate a lot of the process, which would allow a lawyer to kind of take in more clients. Um, I'm sure many more experienced family lawyers, they have a lot of precedents to help them with that right now. So what sorts of um, automation would help a lawyer right. with this do? So I, I think um, it's, it's important to, to break out this sort of old school practitioner who, who believes fundamentally that their um, <clears throat> separation agreement, as an example, is a better contract and they're selling the value of that contract than a generic templated separation agreement that most junior lawyers would go to um, from one of the many sources of sort of generic precedent. Um, if we're talking about the, the old school sort of high touch, I do this custom person, uh, those people in general are not our target market. We're not looking to sort of go into that practice and, and offer them improvements. The people that we, we are excited to work with and that, that uh, we do see, you know, sort of not huge value, but where we can return a lot of value to them right up front is the people who want to help that 60, 70% of the market who are probably, you know, not as financially stable as, as someone who can afford to go to a $400 an hour lawyer. Um, these are people who would greatly benefit from an upfront price. So if a lawyer can say, 
use this tool and all of my services all in for an uncontested divorce or $400 and the lawyer trusts the tool. Um, that, that's, that's the biggest piece is they need to trust the result we're providing and, and I think they should. Um, I'd welcome any lawyer to do some due diligence and, and you know, we'll address whatever issue they have. But um, the, the reality is if you could suddenly instead of doing or handling 10 matters a month or 10 uncontested divorces a month, which would be a lot for a lot of family practitioners. If I could say you could do 100 and you could book them back to back Monday to Wednesday and you could have a four day weekend, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty compelling business case. So at $500 a pop, 100 a month, and the demand is out there. Like that, that's the piece that um, a lot of lawyers are missing is, you know, if you're satisfying somewhere between 40 or 20 and 40% of the total market, um, you're leaving, you know, the, the single standard deviation in a normal distribution. You're leaving the biggest chunk of the market on the table and ignoring that they need help and they need services and that there's value to be, to be had on both sides of that. And so where we see ourselves fitting is bringing that 60% of the market to the lawyer and saying, do this at a flat rate. We'll send lots of them your way. We'll we'll you know bump up the volume, and you'll more than make up for the fact that um, that you charge less per hour because you can handle four every hour instead of one in an hour. Um, that that's really our value proposition. Is if you change the way you do business, we'll make it a much better business to be in. That's very interesting. Now my last question kind of delves from. When I first heard you speak last year, when I first saw the product, I have to ask you, what's the ultimate end goal for this to? Is it to give legal advice? Is it to help expand into contested divorce? Because right now it's mostly focused on uncontested. It's only uncontested, yeah. Um, so contested divorces uh, are, you know, I, I'm very reluctant to say never, but I, I have a deep suspicion of anyone who says that artificial intelligence or anything like that in my lifetime anyway will replace a lawyer going into court and arguing making submissions on a client's behalf in a contested situation <clears throat> I think at the same time lots of those contested situations probably shouldn't have ended up in a contested situation so you know there are there are very valid examples of contested divorces. Um, the uh, Robert Herjavec from Dragon's Den. You can read about his divorce on Canley. Uh, it, it's a fascinating one though because it was contested, and from a financial standpoint alone, his spousal support payments justify spending millions of dollars to contest it because you know a ten percent difference you know within his his range. Being at the low end versus the high end for him, that's you know millions of dollars in savings over the lifetime of his spousal support payments. And he will pay spousal support payments. He's in the indefinite category because he was married long enough and cohabited long enough. Um, so he's an example where, yes, he should be fighting tooth and nail from a financial standpoint. I'm not saying that fighting in general is a good idea, but... From a purely financial standpoint, it makes sense. You, you can evaluate that transaction. For a lot of people, they sell their house, they take out a loan, and they fight over noth like nothing of financial consequence. 
the exception would be child custody. It, it's almost impossible for a computer to ever manage child custody in an effective way. And so the financial cost benefit, if we leave that on the table and agree that we can get people to a better understanding of the financial cost benefit, um, I, I think there's value in that. Where I don't believe we can ever help is when people are fighting over children. Um, you know, th those are things that require an emotional touch, that, that require empathy, that require um, emotional intelligence. And computers fundamentally just don't have that. Um, there are some basic philosophical questions that you know humans have grappled with for, for centuries that need to be answered long before we can ever assume a computer will be able to, to handle these questions. And so when it comes to those things, do I think that a lawyer needs to be present and, and, and sort of advocating for each parent's side in a child custody dispute? Probably not. I think mediators play a, a very valuable role in that. I think that there are lots of alternative services that we could we could bring to bear on some of these problems. But ultimately, if people need their day in court as a form of therapy, computers aren't displacing that. So to, to bring that right back to your to your original question, where is this two headed? This two is going to continue to attack the self-represented litigant problem in the uncontested space. Uncontested is a massive market. Most divorces end in an uncontested submission of some sort where one party has reached an agreement with the other party and they withdraw you know, whatever their complaints may be. Um, and, and so getting people there faster, sooner, and more efficient, um, financially anyway more efficient, and I think time-wise as well, frankly, uh, that, that's the problem that we're going to continue to attack because uh, we are far from solving it. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very important problem faced in pretty much every sort of Western country at the moment. And I, I think it will continue to evolve internationally as well. So Now switching lanes for a bit. Uh, your other product, Compass, you mentioned that you want to use it to compete with Westlaw and Quicklaw. Mm -hmm. And you did mention uh, earlier that the pricing will be a lot less, but how else do you um, think Compass will be able to compete against those two big companies? Yeah, so I think there are, there are a couple ways. I think from a technology standpoint, um, we have already... Um, move the yardstick in terms of what's capable uh, leveraging natural language processing in particular and we continue to uh, devote a lot of our time and energy into improving our capacity to, to do these things automatically. I think from that perspective anyway um, technology will continue to evolve. How legal research changes, you know, if you think about 25-30 years ago uh, legal research was done predominantly with like topical indexes in paper books, paper volumes, and not all cases were reported. So there's a human editor at some point deciding, you know, this is an important case, it gets publication, whereas, you know, this is just another of those family law mess. We're just going to, you know, leave that and it, it's going to be an unreported decision. So there are a lot more unreported decisions. 
sort of the, the online movement or, or moving legal research online and into these searchable databases fundamentally changed the way we did research, but it also fundamentally changed the way lawyers drafted pleadings. It, in essence, we went from you have like a small group of what are considered the relevant cases to I can look at every case in the last 30, 40 years now and make a judgment call about whether the specific reasoning in that case supports my position or refutes my position. And so that changed how we practiced as lawyers. <clears throat> I think the next iteration is, and, and you already see it with the way people are using our system, but the way they're using Google, everything is, people are now expecting you know, the top result to be the result that's of interest to them. Um, you know, Google is a great example where if you can improve your SEO score and be the top result, you get 70% of the traffic just by default. Like you, you, you have to do nothing else other than be the top result and you get 70% of the traffic. By the time you land on the second page of the Google search results, it, it's almost meaningless. Like it's, it's you know, 1% of total traffic. It may be even less. And, and I think, you know, for most people, if you think about how you've used Google in the last two, three years, when was the last time you went four results down and went like, that's actually the one I'm looking for? It, it's pretty rare at this point. They've become very, very adept at delivering the right result based on what you've asked for. And so I think that's the next sort of frontier of legal research is instead of delivering all of the results, improving the quality of delivery of the top result or the top five results or the top 10 results. And that top five or top 10 is dynamic and it, it's generated on a, a holistic picture of who the user is, what the user does. There, there's more to legal research than simply, um, than simply you know, your, your Boolean string that you put in or your natural language query that you put in. It, it, I, I think legal research has to evolve and has to start delivering not just bare results, but answers and interpretation as well. And, and, and that's the threshold that we're pushing towards. And I think that's how we unseat um, LexisNexis and Thompson Reuters. Is that what, I've been on your website recently and there's a few blogs talking about concepts which I have no idea. Like, 17 class name, I don't even know how to, yep. like, like, is that what you're working on yep. for a compass? Yep, yep, and we got a, a big um, a Government of Canada research grant to continue pursuing it, so um, we have, like, postdocs and PhDs on staff <laughs> out there right now that are um, working on this exact problem, so. And is camp Compass, is, is it available right now, or? Yep, okay. yeah, yeah. So then, the stuff you're working on now, is that for, to incorporate into Compass in the future? Yeah, I, I, so um, that I think that's that's another way that we we compete with Thompson and Lexus is um, our our sort of cadence of releases is every two weeks. So okay. every two weeks there's an improvement. Whether it's visible to the users or not is a is a different story. But every two weeks, all the R and D that we're doing, all of the improvements that we're doing, get deployed to our our research tool and. Um, Thomson Reuters, LexisNexis, they're a much larger organization. They don't have the, the ability or the will to be um, that agile. And so what it means is our existing user base can come to us and say, hey, we think this is missing. And what that means is we reprioritize it. And in the next two weeks, we can potentially have that issue addressed. 
and it, it's a different type of customer experience than than what's available on Lexus or Thompson. Uh, if if you went to one of them and said like, hey, I, I think like this thing is missing, you know, like I I'd, I'd really like a a sub search field here. A the answer like if you're an important enough customer, the answer would be okay. It'll take us six months, um, but more than likely you are not an important enough customer because very few people are important enough customers for Lexus or Thompson. You end up. Um, you end up basically submitting a feature request that gets ignored and stagnates. Um, and I think that's a, that's a differentiator for us as well, is we're responsive to our, our user base. Um, and we, we have the ability to continue to be that way because we're a startup and, and we want customers in the market to tell us exactly where they want us to go next. <clears throat> okay, now we're going to change lanes a bit more now and talk more about law and entrepreneurship. So what has been the hardest lesson you've learned about creating your own legal startup? Um, there's, there's a lot of hard lessons that you learn when, when you start a company. Um, probably the, the hardest would be um, there's no easy path to success. <clears throat> and so what I mean by that is you hear the sort of mythos of like Uber, Shopify, all of that. And what gets left out of all of those stories is they existed, Airbnb is another one, they existed as companies for like seven to 10 years before you even heard of them. And, you know, like the Shopify story is they started off trying to sell snowboards, like trying to build a, a, a snowboard store. Um, I'm just repeating what I've heard. I don't know how true that any of this is, so don't 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 take this as as gospel. Um, but they started off trying to sell snowboards, and then they realized like it's really hard to build a snowboard shop online. There's no like nice tool, and that was their sort of like aha moment. Um, <clears throat> but even then, it wasn't like we're going to build a tool to do this, and you know millions of dollars in sales overnight. It was a long, steady progression. They have phenomenal growth now. Like they're they're a great company. I'm so happy that they're in Ottawa. I don't know anyone at Shopify. I'm just glad there's a you know a big success story in Ottawa. It's it's great to see. But um, that's a that, that's an example where like from the outside it's like oh yeah in like two years I'll be a millionaire. And in reality, like in two years you're still gonna be eating ramen noodles. You're still gonna be you know like. We're, we're three years old and I'd say 80% of my staff are funded directly or indirectly with government grants. It, it's not like, you know, we're rolling in cash here. It's we found a way to survive and we continue to find ways to survive. And that's really our goal is to survive as long as possible because it gives us the best chance of success. So like patience for, for all of this is, is probably the hardest lesson I've learned. It's very easy to be impatient. And then what will be the most unexpected thing you learn about being an entrepreneur? Law in general has a bad reputation for work-life balance. Um, and you hear a lot about lawyers like taking their job home with them, that type of thing. Being an entrepreneur, uh, especially when you, when you have like a, a, you are not an employee, you are a founder of the company. Uh, you take work home with you. You take it everywhere you go. 
I think the the best part about it is, or, or like what I've what I've uh, most unexpected piece is, um, I love it. Like taking it home with me and working on it, and always being thinking about it. Like yes, it's stressful. Yes, it's you know it it takes away from other things. But in the grand scheme, like I didn't expect I'd be this happy working eighteen hour days or like whatever I have to do basically to to get something done. Um, I, I, I get frustrated. I get all of that, but like at the end of the day, this is the best job I've ever had. This is the the best experience, and I, I I wouldn't have necessarily anticipated that going in, because you've got to know that it's going to be hard and stressful and all of that. So, and for somebody who's thinking about doing their own legal startup, whether they're in law school right now or whether they're young or even more uh, senior lawyer. What would you be your one piece of advice that you would give them? Um, does it have to be a legal startup? Like, I guess I'd ask them that question. Like, do you have to leave? And does your first customer have to be a lawyer? And the reason I would ask that question, and, and it, I, I hope it would sort of bring them to a similar conclusion, but selling to lawyers in general is a very difficult proposition um, the traditional firm business model is not geared towards efficiency um, when you work on a billable hour if i come in and say like i save you an hour of work every day what i've really said is i cost you 500 dollars every day right I, I cost you billables um, and so you can't sell traditional efficiency necessarily to the practice at large. And so I guess the piece of advice I would give is know exactly who your first customer is going to be and why they are going to be your first customer and how it directly benefits them. And it probably shouldn't be. It saves you time unless you have a really strong business case and you see the market moving that way. Um, also, read The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's a really good book. Um, ben Horowitz. It, it seriously will explain everything you're about to feel and go through. My last question to you is, as someone who's at a legal startup, do you think the practice of law is on the cusp of revolutionary change? Or is there still going to be some challenges ahead? Um, I'm laughing right now because I, I wish we were on the cusp of change. I think the reality is right now the practice and the, the behavior and the, the attitude is so deeply entrenched in the existing firms and system that the likelihood of massive change is low. I think the one exception is there are opportunities to not displace lawyers, but to diminish the role lawyers have and where those opportunities surface um, because they are independent of the practice of law, uh, the change will come whether lawyers like it or not. Um, and I think that's why, you know, for us as an example, we're happy in family law is we aren't reliant on an industry to change to be able to, um, to, be able to execute on our product. Uh, you know, 
lots of barriers in different jurisdictions to to change. The biggest being the monopolies that the law societies are granted. Um, but the the interesting part is the internet doesn't really respect monopolies in terms of jurisdiction. Um, law societies in general are stuck enforcing their monopolies inside their boundaries. They can't reach out into other jurisdictions and enforce their monopolies. So even if we as a family law platform fail, and there's still, there's always that risk with a startup, but even if we fail, um, someone somewhere will execute on family law and I hope it's us, but someone somewhere will succeed in family law. And when they do, it's not going to be in this jurisdiction explicitly. It's going to be like Uber. It's going to be like Airbnb. They're going to locate somewhere else and enforcement against the somewhere else is going to be really, really difficult. Um, and I, I think that's the, that, that's the piece that gives me hope is I'm reluctant to use the disruption word, but, but in the end, it's going to be that type of innovation, that type of work on an international scale that will, will force lawyers to reevaluate the way they're currently practicing, um, with some exceptions. Like, of course, there are forward-thinking lawyers, and I think, too, the new generation of lawyers that are, that are graduating and going like, I don't want to work to a 2200 billable hour target. I don't want to, you know, making $200,000 by my fifth year associateship is not my top priority. Like being able to answer some of those things in a different way than the previous generation um, gives me hope because then they're forced to question the existing business models and practices. But I mean, there are people still, I'm sure in your class who want to be partnered. Like that's their, that's their life objective. And if you want to go down that route, Best of luck. Well, on that note, Sam, I want to thank you for a very interesting discussion on a surprisingly wide range of topics. And uh, I personally was very interested in what you're doing anyway. So I, and I think a lot of the stuff you talked about will be very interesting to our listeners as well. So thank you. Cool. No problem. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.